0: Zart and Matthew Klippenstein are back again for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's weekly podcast about the hottest news and most interesting stories in the clean tech field, focused especially on electric vehicles and solar energy. Check in weekly via cleantechnica.com, SoundCloud, or iTunes to get your electric fix. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 46 of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Matthew Klippenstein, here without Nicholas Sart, We had some scheduling challenges this week, so think of this as a mini-episode, an appetizer, until our next full episode. As we always like to mention, show notes are available at cleantechnica.com, and if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review on iTunes to make it easier for others to discover us. You can also support Clean Technica's Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. We have another review from a listener this week, so thank you very much to the Apocalyptimist, Optimist, who relayed that Clean Tech Talk is one of the four or five podcasts they subscribe to and listen to every week. They wrote some very kind words about detailed and insightful analysis on timely topics, so thank you very much, Apocalyptimist. Optimist. That whole bit about every week and timely topics is kind of why I'm putting this mini episode together here, basically to try to live up to the nice things they had to say about us. So um, yeah, thank you very much again. So the timely news this week is Tesla's quarterly call, which was a bumpy affair. There was a lot not to like about it, and the stock has fallen a bit in the past couple days. Other people are obviously more qualified to talk about financials and what the stock price quote-unquote should be, but obviously Tesla does need to start making money. And even if they don't make money, they need to start losing a lot less money. I want to discuss a couple angles I don't think have been covered yet elsewhere in the blogosphere. One of them is Tesla's rocket problem, and the other is the Friday night news dump issue. Tesla's rocket problem is basically making cars isn't very sexy, at least not compared to launching rockets. Making cars is like 1% mind-blowing engineering work and 99% boring stuff, like really dull stuff, unless you're really into that kind of thing. Making rockets, on the other hand, is 99% sexy mind-blowing engineering and 1% boring. And Elon Musk's companies, at least SpaceX and Tesla, are really amazing at the difficult engineering stuff, but they're also amazingly bad at the simple stuff. And car companies really need to master the simple, boring, dull stuff like production planning. Uh, Toyota is an example of a company that, at least until recently, has never really had much of a design flair. They sold Blandmobiles, and yet they became, for a little while, the top company in the world in terms of sales. And that's because they've mastered the 99% of stuff, and the 1% only matters if you're reasonably good at the other 99%. That's Tesla's challenge, really, at the moment. If we think about the Falcon Heavy launch, that whole mission is a perfect summary of this whole situation. SpaceX mastered the hardest part, did something that no one else has done before. They got their two booster rockets to come down vertically, perfectly located, perfectly synchronized. And that's that's amazing! That's like a highlight reel for the century kind of a moment. And the problem is that, well, compared to that challenge, compared to that difficulty, it should have been really easy to put the, the Roadster into orbit around Mars. NASA has been sending satellites to the planets for decades. And SpaceX missed! They overshot and now the Roadster is headed to like the asteroid belt and it'll loop back down to Earth. It's, it's a bit of a chaotic mess. To take a bit of a comparison, the Voyager 2 spacecraft, it reached Neptune. It was launched in 1977. That's 41 years, that's more than 25 Moore's Law doublings, so SpaceX's computers are probably 100 million times faster than the computers that NASA was using when they launched the Voyager. And despite that advantage and all that extra raw computational power, SpaceX couldn't get into a Mars orbit with the Roadster. So that's a bit like hitting some really sick baskets or amazing baskets from half court, and then missing a whole bunch of layups in succession. So celebrating too much about the booster rockets without worrying why SpaceX missed Mars, which should have been easier, that wouldn't be a good thing, and I just want to temper that enthusiasm a little bit because, again, it doesn't do Tesla or SpaceX any good to be really good at the really hard, intricate, fancy stuff unless they've completely nailed and got solid all the more basic activities. Uh, The other aspect was the pair of so-called Friday night news dumps from the Q4 call. And this probably applies in Europe and Asia, Uh, But in North America, certainly, governments always dump awkward news on Friday night, Friday afternoon. And that's so that it's too late for the news media to make a big deal out of it on the evening news, the 6 o'clock news. And their goal is to have, or their hope is, other news happens over the weekend so that by the time they have to face the press on Monday, the press is no longer talking about that other thing, they're talking about the latest fiasco on Saturday or Sunday. So dumping news on a Friday afternoon, on a Friday evening, it's a sign of weakness. It's something that you don't want to talk about. And the relevance to Tesla's call was that Elon Musk announced towards the very end of the call, after all the other, almost all the other questions came in, that John McNeil, their head of sales and service, was leaving. If this was something that Tesla was comfortable discussing, they would have put that at the front of the call. The fact that this was mentioned as an oh-by-the-way, with something like two questions left, suggests that, at some level, Tesla and Elon Musk think it was bad news, and moreover, it was bad news they didn't want to talk about. So it's not a big deal to have bad news, but whenever you get bad news that companies are trying to bury or or not discuss, that immediately triggers, there must be something to this, this must be worse than normal news, and that's my reaction. You know, something something can't be all happy and good if this resignation, this uh, this end of employment was announced at the very tail end of the uh, of the conference call. Uh, the bigger Friday night news dump, uh, which wasn't even announced at the conference call, fans just found out about it, people like Zachary and Kyle, only found out about it maybe an hour or two after the call was finished, which was that there'd be a delay to the base Model 3, the standard Model 3, the cheaper one, the $35,000 one. And that's an even bigger sign of weakness because if it was pushed out to reservation holders an hour or two after the call, that clearly means that Tesla knew about the problem before the call, and they deliberately didn't discuss it. And the only reason for not discussing something as significant as that and reassuring analysts, don't worry, not a big deal, the only reason you wouldn't go out there and face those questions head-on is if you were nervous about doing so, which implies you have something to be nervous about or you're worried about, which is a lot worse than actually coming out and facing facing the tough questions. There's the old comment that it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. And there's no crimes here, of course. It's not so much the fact that they have another delay. That's not the issue with this uh, Friday night news dump theme. It's the fact that they didn't want to face it on the conference call, and so they let the word out afterwards when they are no longer at risk of being asked about. That's the troubling part. I think we're all familiar with the fact that Elon tends to put schedules together a little bit aggressively, and I think that people would understand if there are delays. The thing which is perhaps frightening is that they didn't even want to discuss it on the call, which again points to to more weakness or suggests there is something worse that they didn't want to deal with it on the call. Now, I do certainly hope that Tesla gets the help it needs with the Model 3 because clearly they do need help. I don't care about the Semi or the Roadster or the Model Y or batteries or tunnels or rockets or flamethrowers or anything else. As far as I'm concerned, the Model 3 is all that matters. This is what everything has been leading up to for the past uh, 15 years, I think. Tesla's 15-ish years old. So let's get this thing wrapped with good quality in a safe workplace. And then, after we've done this critical, boring, dull stuff, then I'll be more interested in talking about or, or reading about or engaging about the other fun activities that uh, Musk has on his plate, because really this should be his overriding focus. This is what he's promised from day one, or at least early days of his being CEO at Tesla, and uh, this is where the attention really ought to be. So that ends my little screed. Thank you for listening. This I feel, much better. I guess it's a bit like uh, like you guys are a crowdsourced psychologist, I I suppose, uh, this week. Thank you very much. So the other angle I want to cover this week was a question of what would you Yimbi? And everyone knows about the NIMBY acronym, not in my backyard. People don't want to have projects, even clean projects sometimes clean energy projects sometimes going up in their backyard. And there's this parallel movement called YIMBY, you know, yes in my backyard. Please do build this. This topic comes through a recent story from David Roberts on Vox, which was titled <clears throat> Reckoning with Climate Change Will Demand Ugly Trade-Offs from Environmentalists and Everyone Else. It's an amazing article, a very eye-opening. I will definitely have that in the show notes. I would strongly, strongly recommend that everyone read it. And the article points out that the Sierra Club of Massachusetts, an environmental group, wants the Pilgrim Power Plant in Massachusetts shut down That plant provides about 5 terawatt-hours per year, which is probably a meaningless number. It's about 4% of New England's electricity. And it's zero carbon. And given how serious climate change is, it's tough to understand why an environmental group would want to shut down a source of zero carbon electricity. As many Tecnica readers pointed out to me after our prior episode, many of our readers and listeners are strongly in favor of keeping existing power plants have them on as long as possible to give us as much runway to make it slightly less difficult to get to zero carbon. That said, there are also uh, people who are strongly anti-nuclear, and uh, I suppose those people hold the, the balance of power in uh, the Sierra Club of Massachusetts. So, okay, that's that's kind of bad news. The worst news in David Roberts' article was that the same Sierra Club came out against a plan to bring hydroelectricity from Quebec, which could provide up to 9 terawatt-hours per year. And that's really, really frustrating. I can understand that perhaps there might be some ecological impact of building transmission lines. Most of it would be underground, some of it would be above ground. But having an environmental group oppose the expansion of hydropower, which is flexible, which is dispatchable, which which has an easier time replacing fossil fuel peaker power plants in conjunction with wind and solar, that is very disappointing to me. That really got me thinking, because I don't want to be judging people when I don't know what their experience is. Maybe there is some key capstone species in the forest up there that really does need to be protected. I don't know. But it's very uncomfortable for me to see uh, an environmental group being opposed to the expansion of zero carbon electricity, which is hydropower, which doesn't even have all of the baggage that nuclear power has. And the result of that is I've spent uh, much of the past week or two pondering, what would I yin be, What would what would I say Yes, in my backyard, too, even if it means taking one for the team. I'd be interested, I'm sure Nicholas as well, would be very interested in hearing stories about what you would even be, whether it's in the comments sections or on Twitter. I'm at ElectronCom, Electron, C-O-M-M, on Twitter, and Nicholas is at Electric Examiner. Their examiner is spelled E-X-A-M-I-N-R, no final E in the examiner. And we'd be really interested to to know where you live and what you'd be willing to yimby in your area. Now, to share a little bit on my part, I'm in British Columbia, and the government has moved ahead with this costly hydroelectric dam, which may not have been a very smart thing to do, considering that solar and wind are far, far cheaper, and the dam is its going to be way over budget. So in the short term, it's a very dumb move. But in the long term, since since we want to try to electrify all of our transportation. It's hard to get too excited about a dam which could provide dispatchable power, peaking electricity, for supplying the province's 2.5 million combustion vehicles, a dam which would allow us to send more dispatchable power in the early evenings to California to help reduce their use of peaking natural gas plants. It's going to be a deep dam, a boreal dam, sort of relatively far north, So there's going to be very little methane production. And yes, there are social justice issues, which are very serious. So we we don't want to overlook those. We don't want to pretend they aren't there. At the same time, I would think that looking back from the year 2118, that my descendants and perhaps yours would be happy that we ha- we added more zero emission carbon to the grid, uh, even at expense, than if we chose not to have that. In addition, because we'll need the solar and the wind anyway. Those things are going to get cheaper in the next coming decades, so we'll always have time to build those out. Saying no to a hydro dam is, it, it just feels a bit off for me. Now another angle with respect to that is our electricity in British Columbia is very cheap. So of all the provinces or states that could afford a big, dumb, expensive dam, we're probably about the best suited to do so. It'll be blended in with all the super cheap hydro that we have. And really, if I'm not willing to go from way below average electricity costs to merely... Below average electricity costs, then you know how is it reasonable for me to uh, criticize the Sierra Club for not wanting to bring more hydro into their region in, in Massachusetts and New England? So I I feel an obligation to say a reluctant yimby to building that dam. Same thing when it comes to a higher carbon tax. Yimby, happy to pay that. Paying a special surcharge or extra insurance for our electric vehicle, as long as that extra money goes towards building out more charging infrastructure, I'm willing to. I'm willing to say yes to that. It helps, of course, that we spend somewhat less than we make in our household. We're not. We're not even ten percenters, but we are above average, and we're thankful and appreciative of that. And so, it's easier, I suppose, to say yes to those kinds of things if you're not just getting by. And certainly, it would be unfair for me or for anyone to ask people who are just getting by to to pay more taxes, it's it's a very difficult ask, right? You have to be able to provide the services or other benefits so that people don't fall off in terms of the social safety net. But going on, would I add, say, 20 minutes to my commute each way for two, three years if it meant that Vancouver area expand its uh, light rail transit system? And I'd say, yeah, because my commute isn't too long, my wife would definitely say no because she has an hour commute each way. So I could totally understand if she opposed it, even though I would say uh, yes to it. Another thing I'd be willing to yimby to would be to tear up our single-family dwelling neighbourhoods to put in condos or townhouses. Totally up for that. Of course, it's a lot harder for me to give up my dream of one day having a house with a garden and a garage and solar panels. But given that density improves the sustainability of cities and of societies, I'm willing to say a reluctant yinbi to replacing all these single-family units with townhouses and condos, low-rise condos especially, in order to have the density of transit and other amenities. I'll I'll give up the garden. So a tough yinbi for that one. That's not nearly as tough as this last one that I just want to get into quickly, which is the expansion of a pipeline, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, here to the west coast of Canada, into British Columbia. Kinder Morgan wants to expand an existing pipeline so they can export more bitumen to Asia. And Kinder Morgan has come off as a pretty arrogant... They've not come off as a model corporate system, let's just put it that way. Furthermore, Alberta might not even need the oil capacity. So, you'd think it'd be a natural thing for me to say no to. And the complicating thing is that there has actually been a lot of change and a lot of progress in Alberta. By Canadian standards, Alberta has been as politically conservative as, say, Utah in the US. So, it's easy to vilify them because they were denying climate change and. Pro-coal, all this other silliness. But a few years back, they elected a progressive government, a climate change-acknowledging social-democrat political party called the, the New Democratic Party in Canada, the NDP. And for American listeners, they'd be like Bernie Sanders kind of a crowd. They put in a carbon tax. They are planning to phase out coal. They are phasing out coal. Uh, They're building out renewables. They've put a legal cap on oil sands emissions, although it's generous, and they were okay with the cancellation of a different pipeline, the Northern Gateway pipeline. So they've pretty much done everything that I or other environmentalists would have wanted, and what they want in return is this expansion of this one pipeline. That would be very bad for the climate. Absolutely. So it's You would think it's a no, but then the fact that Alberta has a left-leaning government for once has created the political situation in Canada, it's created the political environment where Canada is implementing a carbon tax and is putting more progressive policies in place. So if Albertans make all of these concessions and don't get a pipeline, then the backlash will almost certainly mean that they'll go back to a climate change denying, coal championing, carbon tax-rubbishing government. And... That would make it much, much, much more difficult for Canada collectively to take further action on climate. So that leaves me quite conflicted. I don't want to say goodbye to a national carbon price, to a, to a coal phase out. I'm willing to take one for the team. I'm willing to risk having a spill in my urban city or in my metaphorical backyard. But I want to guarantee, I'd want to know that Canada would, a, a, would be able to shrink our emissions faster with this pipeline than if it wasn't. And that's the challenge, right? There are a lot of unknowns. I guess I feel, being the kind of person who likes to you know, come together and have unity and get along with people, on the one hand, I feel a psychological psychologically, I think that it's appropriate for me to offer a concession back to Alberta after everything they've done. At the same time, from a clinical climate change perspective, I suspect that will um, well that will definitely increase emissions in the short term. It's yet to be seen whether that can help us reduce our emissions more in the long term by having a political political unity around the subject. So I don't have an answer to that. That is something which continues to roil in my mind. I'm not going to pretend to, to have an answer, let alone know what the, the best answer would be. No one can tell the future, so I want overall emissions to go down. It's just, how do you do it? Do you stop the pipeline and risk having a massive backlash in Alberta and possibly other uh, conservative-leaning areas? Or... Or do you go through with this? All in all, that David Roberts' article is a compelling read. And after you guys have had a chance to listen to this program, have a chance to read that piece, I would—I'd really love to know what you'd yimbi. Again, I've been—we've been reasonably lucky. I haven't really been asked to take one for the team, and I'd be very interested to know what each of you would be willing to say yes to in your own backyards. Maybe that gives me a few ideas as to what else I could be willing to say yes to or challenge my preconceptions when I think about what I would say no to. Ultimately, again, we're here to reduce our footprint, to lighten up our emissions, and certainly I don't want to be a roadblock if my if my NIMBY preconceptions are preventing progress in other areas. That's it for now then. Thank you very much for listening. Again, if you want to add us on Twitter, I'm at at ElectronCom, Com as in C-O-M-M, and Nicholas is at at Electric Examiner, E X A M I N R. We hope you had a safe commute and join us next week to get your electric fix.